What's up, guys? Mike the Cop here for this special edition of the Fantasy Baseball Police Podcast. Today, we're going to kind of steer away from talking about players and actually talk to a player. And I want to introduce to you from the Boston Red Sox minor league system, one of the best baseball Twitters out there. You can follow him at BARF on the field, Jeremy Barfield. Jeremy, what's going on, bro? Hey, yo, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on. Listen, you got some story, man. Son of Jesse Barfield, everybody knows, but we'll push that to the side for right now. And I think ESPN could probably make a 30 for 30 on you one day, hopefully. So you got almost 10 years in the minors now, and you're finally on the cusp of breaking through to the bigs. At the very least, you've been around a ton of cool spots, Vancouver, Midland, Sacramento, Albuquerque, Camden, now Pawtucket. You've pretty much seen it all. Talk to me a little bit about the minor league grind and what it's like. Man, so, I mean, I've it's changed from when I started to, you know, this, this year. I, I remember when... You know, there weren't any iPads. There weren't any iPhones. I had, like, an LG little flip phone with a keyboard my first couple years. Uh, bus rides were a lot different then. I remember when my when I got drafted, I had to, because I was a young guy, I had to sit next to a six foot seven pitcher. His name was Brent Lysander, and I'll never forget that. And we're going from Vancouver to... It was a long one. I mean, we had to cross the border and go to like somewhere in somewhere in Oregon. So go from that to now you got Wi-Fi, you got unlimited data. I bring my Xbox and just play Xbox and use my phone as a hotspot so I could play Call of Duty on a bus. I mean, it's a lot different now. We got two buses, eating steak and steak and lobster after games in the minor leagues, eating sushi before the games to where I'll never forget when I was in low A in 2009, the biggest crowd that they had ever had in King County. Uh, we were playing the Peoria Chiefs at that time that they were the Cubs low A affiliate, and they had a couple big leaguers rehabbing. It was Reed Johnson, Aramis Ramirez, and a pitcher. I forget, It was a reliever in the big leagues, but he was making a rehab you know, appearance, so he started. Mm-hmm. So we were in Cubs country because we were just you know, a half hour outside the city. We had 16,000 people at that game. It was the uh, July 4th game. And you know what we ate, we ate after that game? Peanut exactly. butter and jelly. <laughs> so That's... it's evolved. It's, it's not as bad as it used to be. Like, especially once you play long enough, you start making respectable money. Because before, it was, it was kind of a joke. You know, your check, you're only getting like, you know, four or $500 per check. And, and, you know, you got to try to figure out, like, what's the cheapest way to eat food that's not absolutely terrible for me. But it's all kind of evolved with organizations really caring about nutrition, things like that. Yeah, I'm sure it's totally different now than what it used to be. Let's rewind a little bit. So growing up the son of a major leaguer, everybody knows about your dad. Everybody knows about your brother, Josh. And I'm sure you have a million stories that most baseball fans would be like, what the fuck? This is amazing. You got one that you can share with us, share with the listeners, maybe meeting your favorite player when you were younger or something along those lines? Oh, absolutely. So this is probably one of my favorites. Um, So this is when my dad was coaching at this time. So this was 1998, the last full season at the Kingdom. My dad was a hitting coach with the Mariners. And uh, uh, they had, you know, teams do family day. And so we have like a little t-ball game on the field. So I was 10, 11 years old, and I, I, you know, we're hitting the ball off the tee, and I kind of pulled it a little foul, 
and I accidentally hit uh, <laughs> Melissa Griffey, King Griffey Jr.'s wife. <laughs> I accidentally hit her, and it didn't hurt her, but I was so scared that – and he started – he took off and ran right after me, and I, he literally chased me down in right field. And it was so funny because I was fearing for my life, thinking he was about to kill me. And it happened to be my birthday. That's what it was. It was also my birthday. And so he gave me uh, he gave me some birthday spankings just joking around. So that was one of the funniest things ever. That's great, man. Growing up and being around the game so much, is there anybody that you modeled your game after? Like, I want to be just like this dude? I mean, not really. I just watched everybody because like, I always felt like, you know, whenever I got older that I'd just kind of be my own player. And if I could, like, I never grew up with a favorite team because I wanted to just watch everybody that I could instead of just uh, shoeboxing myself into one team. So I watched every team. So I grew up in Houston, but it's not like I watched the Astros uh, religiously. I watched everybody I could and just try to expose myself to as many players as I could have. And I, I still do that now. Like, I, even during the season, I still watch baseball. I mean, I, I just just enjoy watching it and seeing other players. Yeah, I could see where you're coming from because you want to take something from each guy. Now, your minor league career, I mean, it's been a long one, and the struggles were in the beginning. 2014 rolls around, and not many people know this, but you were pretty much Otani before Otani was Otani, right? <laughs> so you came something out. Like yeah, so you came out, you pitched, and you actually did pretty good in 2014. I think you had 36 innings, 43 strikeouts. Your ERA was around the four, 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 two. What was it like making that transition to pitching? And I mean, I think if you could convince the guys in Pawtucket to let you pitch, you should try it again. Yeah, I don't want. I'm not. Yeah, that's definitely not happening. I don't. I don't. <laughs> that's not even an option. I hit, although I did pitch in Portland this year. <laughs> actually, yeah, I saw that. Went out for my fourth inning. Uh, it was it, so the whole transition to pitching was it was it was just bad timing being an outfielder in the A system because at that time they had Seth Smith, Coco Chris, Yoenis Cespedes, Josh Reddick, so and Brandon Moss. You know he played first, but he's also an outfielder and corner outfielder. So it was just really bad timing on my behalf because then in the Triple A had Michael Taylor who had gone up and down. Michael Choice was a first rounder. He ended up, you know, getting some big league time. Uh let's see, Shane Peterson, who was just up this year with the Rays. He was like in the Matt Holiday trade. So, you know, that's kind of dating myself a little bit. But <laughs> I mean all these guys that were in the outfield just in triple A and here I am. I mean I was feeling good because I had repeated double A a few times and went back for my third year. So then I finally after the first month, finally got the AAA, so I was 24. And uh, and then the last straw was kind of they had – they had uh, – man, it was nuts. They had Steven Vogt, who had also played some outfield. Uh, another guy with big league time the previous year, Scott Moore, was playing some outfield. This is all on the same team. But Crazy. that's not even the, the final straw. The last one was whenever they decided to have Jamile Weeks play outfield. So I just named, what, seven guys? Yeah, I think and so, seven. that just relegated me to first base coach. <laughs> and so I would go, you know, six, sometimes six days, sometimes a week without playing. And it didn't matter how I played. I just, I play a game basically because someone, you know, someone was, was hurt or someone needed a day off. And then I would just go back to being first base coach. 
And so that the whole pitching thing came along because there was no room for me anywhere and they wouldn't even send me back down to double A. And so they didn't ask me if I wanted to pitch. They just told me that they were going to convert me to a pitcher. And the way it works is you, you know, immediately I asked for my release and they didn't give it to me. So then I had no choice because then they can just put you on the restricted list, which they told me they were going to do if I didn't pitch. And then that just, you're pretty screwed after that point. So I went all in on the pitching uh, halfway through 2013. Actually, on my birthday is when they told me they were converting me. <laughs> so then I go from AAA to rookie ball. It's crazy. And I learned how to pitch that whole summer in Arizona, just melting. They sent me to Dominican Republic. Actually, they first they sent me to Instructional League uh, to face some batters. And then they sent me to Dominican Instructional League. Not Dominican Winter Ball, Dominican Instructional League. And I stayed at the complex in La Victoria, Dominican Republic. So I stayed at the complex with 16, 17, 18-year-old uh, you know, Dominicans. And that was a whole experience in its own. I'm sure. And I pitched there for a few weeks as well. And then the next year, they sent me back to the very uh, hitter-friendly California League to pitch. And then I did that the whole first half of the season. And I was going to be a free agent, you know, six-year free agent after that year, after 2014. And they just, you know, they, you know, they gave no intention, you know, they showed no intention that they were going to move me up to at least double A. So I didn't want to. I was kind of in a tough place because I was going to be a free agent, a 26-year-old pitcher in A-ball that with, you know, one half year of experience, one season of experience, you know, that's pretty much, you know, pretty much career's done unless the A's wanted to bring me back. And so that's when I told them, like, hey, I straight up told them, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> and then they sent me back to A to play the outfield the rest of that year. Well, we'll see what happens. Hopefully you make it this year and you play Oakland and could really give them a nice fuck you, maybe hit a couple bombs against them. Listen, <laughs> I know. <laughs> hopefully. That's, that's, that's the way. Hopefully it will happen. Um, I know I speak to a lot of guys every day, all these fantasy baseball guys, all these guys that watch baseball every day about sabermetrics, and, but none of them play. Uh, they have history playing the game, but none of them are still actively playing the game like you are. What do you, and since you pitched, what do you think of wins and losses in pitching? Because it seems like wins and losses are pretty much out the window when judging a pitcher. Um, I, I don't think you can look at one stat just by itself anymore. Like, you can't just completely throw anything out or just look at sabermetric stats, you know, look at, look at a metric and be just like, oh, this is the, the end-all stat. No, you have to use them all together to get a better idea. Because in baseball, there's definitely a lot of luck involved, especially when you look at hitters and Babbitt. And like I'm, I, like I'm starting to learn more because my brother, he's now uh, assistant farm director for the D-backs, and so yeah. we, me and him talk a lot about you know metrics and things because it's part of the game, whether people like it or not. Especially you know the old, the old regimes like it, the game's evolving, and they're looking at things like that. It's not quite Moneyball to where it's all numbers because you have to have baseball people involved. But when it comes to like looking at a stack completely and be like it's more than it's not just wins and losses. I mean, it is in some sense. I mean, you can throw out other things like, you know, run support. That has nothing to do with a pitcher unless he's in the National League and it's just that bad of a hitter to where he only gives himself eight position players to really help him out. But 
Like, remember what Freddie Garcia won the Cy Young with what twelve wins? Felix Hernandez. Yeah, yeah, Felix Hernandez. Sorry, yeah, Felix Hernandez, King Felix. He won it with twelve wins, however many years ago. I want to say it was only twelve wins, but because he yeah. had the worst run support in baseball. Always. And so you can't just look at wins and losses because I mean we're talking tough losses to where he lost, he'd lose like one nothing, two to one. So everything else looked great, but he had no run support. So you have to look at other things like that. Like I think WHIP is a good stat that you that you can use to get an idea, but you have to use it. it you have to use it with other stats. Yeah, no, like, I get what you're saying. Yeah, because like say a guy has like a his WHIP's like a one seven, but then it's like especially in the minor leagues. Like, say a guy has, like, a whip that's pretty high, but then you look, like, defensively, his guys are terrible. And, say, it's not even, like, it's not even, like, errors. He's giving up hits because, say, his infielders have no range or, like, a team's trying to convert a couple prospects to a different position. Therefore, that they're uncomfortable and giving up hits that should be outs. Yeah. And it seems like that happens a lot in the minors, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, like, hmm. Like the guys, there's guys that are kind of going to come in and snake some wins, you know, out of the bullpen, but you're not really looking at wins and losses out of the pen. Like it's really a starter stat. Because let's be honest, most uh, closers end up with a couple wins and a couple losses because either they blow a save or, you know, they blow a save and then they stay in, the team walks off or something like that, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think there still is a place for wins and losses when it comes to starting pitchers, just not on its own. Yeah, I, th- I think it's gradually slowing down. It, it might be on its way out eventually, but I still do think there's a place. What do you think about pace of play? You think it's all bullshit or? Um, it depends, man. Because like it's it's I've seen it on both ends. Because especially being a pitcher with the clock, honestly for me, so I've pitched with the clock and I've hit with the clock. It's more of an issue for a hitter because. For a hitter, you need more of a routine. Like you need you need your routine, especially like in between pitches, because you need to be able to flush the pitch more than like the pitch. You know, just to get move on to the next pitch more than the pitcher needs to, because the pitcher sets up pitches, things like that. But as a hitter, you need to be able to move on from pitch to pitch. Say you chase a pitch, you need a second, and then you can't step out of the box, do this or that, and that's not real. The real issue in baseball, pace of play, like. And the thing is, they're not even like they're not even like going at the real issue. Like I played in indie ball, the Atlantic League, parts of three years, and they were really the first ones to have a pace of play initiative, and they limit the mound visits, and that's the big freaking problem: is the mound visits. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Atlantic League's uh, pace of play. Um, you can only get three mound visits total a game, and we're not talking just coaches; we're talking catcher going out there and talking to a pitcher. Or a position player talking to the pitcher. That's yeah. it. And you want to talk about speeding up the game? My God, dude, it works wonders. I didn't know that that they did that over there in the independent league, but that'll really fuck with the pitcher's head though. And late in the game, you can't go out to the mound at all, and this guy's giving up, not even throwing strikes. That's crazy. Well, he shouldn't be in that situation if he can't throw strikes. I mean, yeah. that's why you have to use it strategically, though. Like. It was funny. We had a catcher that just got – he had just gotten released uh, by the Mets, and he came uh, – He he, and then we picked him up, like, and it was his first game. And our pitcher walks four straight. Top of the first leadoff hitter, our pitcher walks uh, walks the guy on four straight. And then our catcher just gets up to go talk to him. And we're yelling, no, no, no. Boom, <laughs> just burned a visit. He didn't know, so he yeah. burned a visit. 
that's affiliated crazy. big leagues, that's no problem. So think about this in the playoffs when the coach comes out after every batter, he comes yep. out to just chat with them. This is where it's, it's so important to have uh, a game plan and just to be, and just to be dialed into that game plan and that scouting report to where it's like, that's all they're coming out to do is just a quick reminder of a scouting report. But if, you know, if the guy, you know, if they actually do their homework and remember the scouting report, then it won't be as necessary. And you got to be strategic and saving your mound visits. Cause that's a big freaking problem, man. I'm telling you, especially in playoff baseball, mound visits kills the flow. Yeah, I see it, and I can totally understand how three would speed up the game quicker. So maybe that's something they look into. I want to transition back to you a little bit and forget about everything that happened before, we'll say before 2015. 2016 comes, you're in the Independent League. You have a great year. You're 27 homers, 85 RBIs, 306. Then you follow that up in 2017, killing it in the Indie League, and Boston picks you up. Double A, Triple A, and you played those. I think it was what three games at the end of the year. You played in Triple A in yeah. Pawtucket. So yep. what changed? Because something obviously changed. Now you're hitting 27, 28 homers the last two seasons. I don't think you had any over 20. You had 17 in 2010, but something obviously, whether it was mental or physical, kicked in, right? Yeah. So my goal apparently is to increase my career home run high by 10. Each season now, <laughs> I don't know how realistic that is because I ended up, you know, uh, you know, I told you previously, I ended up total this year with 37 and it's not like it's out of nowhere. I'm a big guy. I, you know, I like to think I got a lot of power, but it's all about tapping into it. And some guys are just late bloomers. And, you know, some of it has to do with, especially in organizations, they try to cookie cut guys into doing certain things a certain way, like doing things a certain way regardless of a guy's skill set like for me for me to like they wanted me to use the whole field which I get that if I'm getting pitched all over the zone but I'm getting pitched inside because I'm a big guy and they don't want me to extend my arms and so then basically once I got to indie ball you're you do you there and that's really how baseball should be is you do you as long as you're helping the team and you're consistent like that's that's all that matters and so I started, um, I started not caring about pulling the ball because I'm getting pitched inside. Like pretty much every pitch I see, I'm getting pitched inside. That's why I got drilled so many times this year is because I, all I do is get pitched inside. And if they miss, they're going to miss inside, not out over the plate. And if they do miss over the plate, I'm going to crush it. So, I mean, like it wasn't like I – I roid it up or anything like that's not even, <laughs> that's not even it. It's just, I started doing me and not even like, not even caring about, not even caring about anything else except for doing what I do. Worried more about taking advantage of my strengths as opposed to really anything else. Yeah. And you're definitely experiencing a, a career revival, I would say. And like you said, how they, they're always trying to change you. I think a good example of that was Byron Buxton. They changed this dude's swing 15 times. He's only 23 years old, and he struggled with it. And now he's finally got the leg kicked down, and he had, you saw what he did in the second half of last year. So I guess it's kind of something similar where he went back to his old ways, and now he's killing the ball, you know? Yeah, absolutely, because I feel like it doesn't happen with every organization or every coach, usually like a coordinator, because they got so many guys. They got hundreds of guys they're all trying to keep track of. I mean, that's tough. You can't get the one-on-one time that guys really need. And sometimes they give you time that they don't, guys don't even need. 
just because they're trying to guys are just trying to put their stamp on a player. And it does help some guys, but it hurts a lot of other guys. And now you played most of your time in Portland this year in double A. I got to ask just because I know he looks like an all world talent. Rafael Devers playing with this dude. What's the ceiling for this guy? Is this guy going to be as good as everyone says? Hey, like Michael Jordan said, the ceiling's the roof. Yeah. <laughs> He's the truth, man. He really is. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it was impressive to watch from day one. I mean, the kid would walk into the clubhouse every day with a big smile on his face just because he loves playing the game. He's a good kid. He's just a really good kid, great teammate, works his butt off. I mean, all, practicing on the field, in the gym, works his butt off. I mean, our, so, our, uh, so our manager in Portland, he's now a third base coach, Carlos Fables. He worked with him almost every day. Uh, just at third base on his footwork, and and it, it just paid off because, I mean, this kid is he's unbelievable. And he's one of those guys that deserves it because he's just such a good person and such a hard worker that he deserves everything that he has coming his way, like all the success is earned. Yeah, that's good to hear. I remember when he took Chapman Oppo and everyone was like, what the fuck just happened? We're not. We were not surprised by that whatsoever, man. Yeah, we were crazy. not surprised by that. He took. Uh, so you know how everybody talks about Seth Lugo's curveball. Yeah. He took him Oppo Taco against the wind in Binghamton. <laughs> That's funny, man. Yeah, he seems like yeah. he's fucking the real deal. He is the real deal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I bet they're. I bet the team's really glad they ended up not getting Todd Frazier. Yeah, I'm sure. And they got a bunch of guys down there, Michael Chavis. These guys that you're playing with, these are MLB talents, and you had a great year, so you're with the rest of them. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, real quick, best pitcher you've ever faced? Ooh, man. Best pitcher I've ever faced. Uh, let's see. Ah. Uh, this is a tough one because he was hurt majority of his career. I don't even know if he's still playing, but Casey Weathers, Casey when he Weathers. was with the Rockies in 2010, he was the nastiest pitcher I'd ever faced. Really? I mean, it was it was a nightmare because nothing was straight. His catcher hated catching him because everything was just so disgusting. It was. Yeah, I'd have to say Casey Weathers because it was, I mean, everything he had was a plus pitch, plus movement, below, uh, same arm slot. It was just an absolute nightmare facing him. He's actually playing in the Indies right now, too, in uh, Fargo. Maybe oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, different league. Oh, okay, I got you, I got you. Yeah, uh, so I believe that's uh, yeah, different league. A pitcher that you'd love to face that you never got the chance to, or haven't yet, I should say that, haven't yet. Oh man, I don't know anybody. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't care who's up there, man. Like, I'm not. I'm not really worried. Everybody has to throw strikes. So yeah, I feel you. All right, let's do a, a quick rapid fire segment before I let you go. We'll do a couple questions here so the listeners can get to know you a little bit more. I mean, I know this is this is on the surface stuff, but we'll see. You ready for it? Absolutely, I'm game. Hit All me. right, favorite cereal. Reese's Puffs. Apple or Samsung? Apple. MJ or LeBron? LeBron. 
Nice. Adidas or Nike? Nike. Favorite superhero? Superhero. Black Panther. Nice. Ice coffee or hot coffee? Iced. Favorite city? Vancouver, BC. Pepsi or Coke? Pepsi. Favorite song right now? Favorite song right now? Silence by uh, Khaled. And favorite baseball movie? Last one. Favorite baseball Major League, the OG. <laughs> All right, man. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Everybody listening, go follow Jeremy on Twitter. Jeremy, I'll definitely keep in touch. Good luck with everything. It seems like you're right there. You're about to break through. I really hope it happens. I'll be rooting for you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good one.